Yeah. I mean, when we look at the data, it's really rather shocking. When you look at most European countries, they have roughly a 10 percentage point higher participation rate by women in the labor force than we do here in the United States. I mean, we're talking, you know, well north of 10 million additional women in the labor force. And the question is why? Okay. Now, let me be clear. It's a couple of reasons, but in general, it is because they have care support. So first of all, the United States does not have guaranteed maternity or parental leave writ large, like all European countries. That's one important aspect to it. The second is that most other countries not only have guaranteed six months or a year off where the employer has to hold your position, but they also have extremely affordable childcare services. Now that is freedom, okay? Therefore, people can choose, do I want to stay home or do I want to go to work while sending my child to an affordable, high-quality childcare? That is actual meaningful freedom. Welcome to Reviving Virtue, a podcast where we face the urgent challenges of today's world by exploring the crucial role of uncovering, together, a coherent moral narrative for our time. I'm your host, Jeffrey Anthony, on a quest to tackle liberalism's quandary and pave the way towards a more unified society. Join me on this journey as we delve into ethics, philosophy, and community building, seeking to create a common understanding that fosters human flourishing and harmony. Welcome to Reviving Virtue. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reviving Virtue. Today, we are thrilled to have with us Dr. Mark Paul, an economist and assistant professor at Rutgers University and a member of the Rutgers Climate Institute. Mark holds a PhD in economics from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and has dedicated his research to understanding the causes and consequences of inequality as well as designing remedies to address it. His recent book, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights, published by the University of Chicago Press last month, is a remarkable read that argues at its center for an economic bill of rights. In the book, Mark outlines a comprehensive suite of policy programs drawing on FDR as well as MLK's proposed Economic Bill of Rights, aiming to achieve a more capacious and enduring version of American freedom. He enumerates rights such as the right to a good job, the right to an education, the right to banking and financial services, and the right to a healthy environment, among many others, which we will be exploring in this episode. So without further ado, welcome, Mark. That's great to be here. Thank you. So in preparation for this interview, in addition to reading your new book, I also checked out a few other podcast interviews you did and learned a few things about you that's not in your book. And I'm bringing this up at the beginning here because I was hoping you could share with our audience the somewhat non-traditional path you took to becoming an economist and how that has informed your view of economics and how it informed your book. I mean, to be honest, I've been wanting to be an economist since I could walk. No. (laughs) <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. You know, I don't think anybody really grows up wanting to be an economist. I, uh, you know, I grew up not sure what I wanted to do. And then by the time I hit high school, I decided I wanted to be a chef. I loved food. You know, I grew up in this household where we ate a lot of DiGiorno pizza and mac and cheese, and it wasn't particularly appetizing. And thanks to public programming, I discovered Julia Child, and she taught me all about food on PBS. And I fell in love. And next thing I knew, I was working in restaurants through high school, ended up going to culinary school out of high school and worked in restaurants for a while. And it was actually my experience working in restaurants coupled with the kind of implosion of the economy during the 2008 financial crisis that really led me to economics a little bit later in life. And, you know, a kind of a couple of things culminated there for me. One is 
And I was working in fairly high-end restaurants, cooking really wonderful food, but I nor the people I was working alongside, you know, with on the line could ever afford to bring a date, you know, or go out to eat with our parents at this restaurant, you know, and, and that was really troubling to me. You know, I saw hard workers that had been showing up to their jobs, working 60 hours a week, you know, 52 weeks a year for years. And yeah, they're making above minimum wage. They couldn't come shell out 150 bucks a night for dinner. And this is back in, you know, 15 years ago. But, you know, today it'd be even more expensive. And so that kind of got me initially interested. And then the financial crisis hit with the implosion of, you know, of the global economy. I really, you know, was trying to understand what is it that could bring tens of millions of people to their knees? Like, how does that happen? Why is it, you know, why did the music stop all of a sudden? And, you know, it was the culmination of these experiences that set me on my path to studying economics. And I haven't looked back since. Fantastic. I'm glad you did become an economist because your book really lays out an incredible overview of how we got here. And I think a lot of people forget how we got here. This is an intentional project that has been orchestrated since, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, and as you call neoliberalism. But I, before we get to that, early in the book, you lay out this concept of negative and positive liberty. And negative liberty is a topic we covered a few episodes ago on this podcast when we were reviewing John Dewey's The Public and Its Problems. And most people who come across this concept do so by reading Isaiah Berlin. Can you explain these two concepts and why it is so important to understand the differences between them? Sure. So negative liberty is typically associated with freedom from constraint. It's what we often think of today when we talk about freedom in the American discourse. You know, when we talk about freedom or liberty, we often think about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, you know, some of the key freedoms enumerated in the Bill of Rights, which is perhaps the most powerful exposition of negative freedoms around the globe. In contrast, we also have positive freedom. And positive freedom, also known as positive liberty, actually Berlin uses this idea of liberty and freedom interchangeably, which Americans do not. So I, I just want to be cautious there and kind of mention this to the readers. And positive freedom essentially is, you know, the right to certain things. In essence, I kind of boil it down to the right to the good life. It's what does your government, what does, what are you owed as an individual? And so the freedom that we're most familiar with akin to this is the freedom to obtain an education. I mean, every morning, 50 million Americans wake up, roll out of bed, you know, grab their backpacks and step onto a yellow school bus and they go into their public school. They're not asked for a receipt. They're not asked for proof of purchase. They're just educated because it's their right to obtain an education. Now, you know, that is just one positive freedom. And we can think about a much broader swath of positive freedoms. But since your listeners were chatting with you about Dewey the other day, I want to mention, you know, Berlin is not necessarily the biggest friend of positive freedoms. T.H. Green, another Oxford economist, was a much bigger fan of positive freedoms, where he really outlined, I think, in a, in a very cohesive manner, what it is that the state owes each and every individual, not as a matter of charity, right? This isn't about charity. Positive freedoms are about, you know, the fact that people don't enter society to become poorer than they would be otherwise. It's a birthright. So it's a very different conception than how we think about things, for instance, like welfare here in the United States. It's incredibly powerful when you think about it because, you know, we were born into this society 
And the way we are raised here in the United States, at least part of my generation X, is we were just, it was just drilled into our heads that it was all about individual. Like you're responsible for yourself and your success is only due to yourself. And when in reality, your successes are a direct result of the community you're a part of and the systems that are there to help and support you. And this mutual back and forth between the government and the public and the community of who's directly around you to support you is really important. And that was lost over the last 40 years. This was something we used to have before. I think you, you talk about that a bit, you know, with uh, MLK and how he, his last writings that was released right after his, his unfortunate assassination, wasn't he talking about a bill of rights and how this was something that we owed to the people of our nation, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think often we're a very individual nation where we think that, you know, we're each out for our own well-being. And we forget that society is not just made up of a bunch of individuals. It's made up of a bunch of individuals that are cooperating, agreeing to be members of the society to work together. And if we're all just looking out for ourselves all the time, I mean, society would literally disintegrate. I mean, we would be living in chaos. And thankfully, that's not the case. I mean, you know, neighbors do things for each other constantly. You know, we, we have, you know, a huge nonprofit sector that is not engaging in work because it's maximizing their own profit or their own well-being, but because they think that they're engaging in meaningful work to lift up their community. And, you know, I think this notion of rights, unfortunately, became associated with individual rights exclusively. And really, this was kind of part of the turn towards neoliberalism. But I think this misses the collective project, which is it's not about just providing for any single individual, but how do we actually lift all boats, as JFK so famously said. And I assure you, it's not via tax cuts, which was the context of the original quote. It, it really is through delivering on universal services and universal guarantees of basic necessities. You know, it's mm -hmm. funny. We talk a lot about political rights. We talk a lot about civil rights. And unfortunately, we've been talking a lot more about reproductive rights as they've come under increasing attack, particularly across the South. But what you know, I want readers and listeners here today to understand is that those rights have never been sufficient to achieve Jefferson's promised life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. To really achieve meaningful freedom, we need to add economic rights into the mix. Now, even Berlin talks about this. To give somebody negative liberty who is poor and living on, their, on the streets is, in his words, to mock their condition. You know, To give somebody the right to vote when they don't know when their next meal is going to be is not any meaningful freedom in, in any reasonable sense. And so the project here is how do we ensure that people actually have the ability to live a free life and to be who and do what they have reason to value? So speaking of these economic bill of rights, can you explain a little bit more what they are, how maybe a little bit of the history, how, they, how this has come up before in the past, why you think it's important for us to have an economic bill of rights, and maybe you know, talk about a few of them if you can. Sure. So the idea of an economic bill of rights really came to fruition during the New Deal. President Roosevelt, you know, early on prior to coming into office, actually gave this famous address, the Commonwealth Address, where he really laid out his vision of cradle to grave security for the American people as essentially what he was working towards. And he wanted people to have basic economic dignity. He thought that you know, Roosevelt was famous for saying, that 
no job is sufficient. It has to be a good job. And when you know he would chastise what back then were the akin to our Walmarts today who are, like to create poverty level jobs, he would say, you know, no firm should exist that exists based off of poverty employment. Hmm. And so as Roosevelt began fleshing out the New Deal, and this is something I think a lot of people don't realize, the New Deal wasn't one or two or three bills. What we call the New Deal today took place over roughly six years and comprised of over 100 pieces of legislation. And so towards the end of the New Deal in 1944, Roosevelt proposed in his State of the Union an economic bill of rights. At the time, the Allies had turned the tide of the war in conjunction with the Soviets. And you know Roosevelt and his administration could turn their attention towards life in America after the war. And they were thinking, you know, what is it that's going to be the, the central focus of the post-war era? And they settled on this notion of an economic bill of rights. You know, they had done so much to pull people out of poverty and destitution following the Great Depression. But Roosevelt and his administration knew the job wasn't done. And mm-hmm. so he called for an economic bill of rights, which included things like the right to a well-paying job, the right to a home, the right to medical care, the right to unemployment insurance, the right to an education, and more. Now, unfortunately, Roosevelt passed away just a year after introducing this economic bill of rights, but he was dead set on achieving it. In fact, Roosevelt saw the economic bill of rights as the culmination of the New Deal, really the cherry on top, so to say. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of Roosevelt's biggest mistakes was allowing centrist Democrats to replace Henry Wallace, who's a huge proponent of economic rights, on the ticket with Truman. And Truman was not. Truman was you know, a, a much more conservative Democrat, which is precisely why they pushed to replace, uh, to place him on there and, instead of Wallace. And so the economic bill of rights idea went silent for a little while. Now, it rem- parts of it remained in the Democratic Party platform, in fact, all the way until 1988. However, it was really with the you know, surge of the civil rights movement, but people like not only Martin Luther King, but Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph that really championed this idea of economic rights. And this is a history I think we forget at our own peril. You know, We celebrate MLK Day today, we celebrate and cheer for the civil rights movement, but we forget that you know, the civil rights movement didn't only center political rights, they also centered economic rights. You know, King fought tirelessly to ensure that nobody was poor in America, not just black America, but nobody was poor in America. And it was, you know, his turn towards the poor people's campaign in 67 and 68, following the passage of the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act, where he started building broader cross-race, cross-class coalitions to really pursue and hopefully win this notion of an economic bill of rights. You know, of course, King, unfortunately, was assassinated while working with striking sanitation workers in Memphis. And really, you know, this idea, again, went dormant for a little while. And it's just recently that I think the time is ripe to pick it back up. And part of the reason is because, you know, you have progressives out there talking about a lot of the ideas that were embedded in the original Bill of Rights, whether it be a job guarantee to ensure full employment, true full employment, mm-hmm. or a homes guarantee, a huge campaign by People's Action right now to ensure everybody has a roof over their head, or Medicare for All, which was, you know, the past two presidential elections, you know, one of the largest, you know, debating topics. So all of these were 
we've been fighting for in the United States for a century. And I think people forget that. You know, when we have the discussions about these ideas today, people often talk about Finland or other, you know, you know, Scandinavian countries. But what I wanted to do in this book was reflect back on the American struggle for these ideas. Because mm-hmm. these ideas have been part of the American conversation since there was an American conversation. And I think that's really important for us to lift up and reckon with. Mm-hmm. Now you had asked to talk about some of the rights. I mean, the second part of the book really aims to do is to lay out an affirmative vision for an economic bill of rights to actually, rather than sit here and talk about how terrible neoliberalism is all day, which you can pick up. I'm, you know, I'm staring at your bookshelf. I'm sure you got dozens yeah. of books about it on there. What I want to do is lay out the affirmative vision for the post-neoliberal economy. And I think far too many books try to cram that into the last chapter. And I flipped that on its head and really devote the bulk of this work to fleshing out what the economy looks like if we try to focus on human flourishing and well-being rather than short-term profit. Fantastic. Well, this is a great follow-up to uh, my next question. That's a multi-part one. So like one of the seven economic bill of rights you mentioned is the job guarantee. And this is something I've been a big proponent of for several years since I've really learned about it and been reading about it. And like you mentioned, this is, this is now becoming part of the discourse and on the left. And you say that unemployment is a tax on society, which it is, you know, and as we transition into this green economy, the coordination that is required for suppliers to meet the demand of this new economy will need a massive coordination on a scale not seen since World War II, really. And it's something the private sector just can't do. They don't have the knowledge, ability to see the economy on that scale. And, and so uh, this is where the government can step in with a job guarantee. And I was hoping that you could talk about that. And there's a little bit more I want to just tag in on here because since this is a topic I've studied a bunch, I noticed in your book that you also pair it with the UBI, which, you know, universal basic income. And for our listeners, my background is I, I have noticed that UBI and the job guarantee are usually an either or. And Mark, you actually say they're complementary. And so I kind of want to explore that a little bit. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Sure. So one, you know, John Maynard Keynes, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century, has this, you know, oh, kind of lovely quote that he told Joan Robinson, another mm-hmm. kind of famous economist of the 20th century. And he said, I hate unemployment because it's stupid. And it's truly shocking when you take a step back and think about it. Unemployment is somebody saying, hey, I want to contribute. I want to work. I want to collectively add my labor to make society richer. And then it's society saying, you know what? No, thanks. You can go yeah. sit there. No. I mean, it's somebody saying, I want to be a team player and us saying no. I mean, it really is just a, you know, not only a, a you know, individual crisis often because how do we make a living through work for, you know, 99.8% of America, except for the very few who have large intergenerational transfers of wealth, but it's also where we get our dignity, our sense of purpose and the like. And so the notion of a job guarantee simply recognizes that capitalism does not provide full employment and never really never has. You know, the time we got closest to it was during World War II. So from 1943 to 45, we averaged just 1.7% unemployment. You know, today you hear the Federal Reserve talking about quote unquote full employment or even a term that just shouldn't exist, in my opinion, beyond full employment is what the Fed thinks that we're at here today. Uh which is like really, you know, if you just talk to somebody on the street that doesn't have a PhD in economics, they're going to say like, how is it possible we're beyond full employment? I mean, full employment means zero unemployment, right? It means everybody who wants yeah. a job has one. 
And I would say, yes, I agree, but that's not how, unfortunately, most modern day policymakers define the notion. So the job guarantee simply says, hey, everybody should be able to have a quality job if they want to work. This is important for a number of reasons. First of all, it puts a real floor in the labor market for the first time. Often folks think about a minimum wage as a floor in the labor market, but we have to reckon with the fact that you know, a minimum wage doesn't actually provide employment. So is a minimum wage some form of a floor for people who already have jobs? Yes, but it doesn't serve people who do not have jobs. And even here today, we have millions upon millions of Americans unemployed at this very moment. They want to work, they're actively seeking jobs, and those jobs simply don't exist at the moment. So the job guarantee fixes that problem. And you brought up the transition to you know, a green economy. And I think one reason that these dovetail together so nicely, because the job guarantee program, I think, is really well established to do two things. One is set a really strong floor in the labor market. And two is to then devote those workers towards socially meaningful tasks. Now, that could be a whole wide variety of tasks. And what I tell people is to go outside and walk around your community and think about what type of labor would my community benefit from. Maybe it's you know, people cleaning up your parks or folks trimming trees or people insulating your homes. I mean, I live in a cold climate. I know that we would sure benefit from some additional insulation. Or maybe it's additional teaching aids in classrooms. There's no shortage of important work to be done Really, the problem is, as you highlighted, a coordination problem. It's a problem of not having, you know, planning to think about, okay, there's idle people over here and there's important work to be done over there. How do we put them together to make sure it happens? And in capitalism, if there's a lot of money to be made, well, then capitalists will figure out that problem for us. But, you know, there's plenty of crucial services that need to be done where there's not lots of money to be made, in which case, the government has to step in and play a, a foundational role. Now, you know, I do want to say earlier in my career, I was sometimes guilty of pinning a job guarantee against the idea of a basic income. I, I fell into the classic scarcity economist mindset. And upon further reflection for this book, I realized I was wrong, that really these ideas are complementary. And the reason that I lay out both in an economic bill of rights is because that I think everybody deserves economic security and for some people, work isn't right at certain times in their lives, or at least what I mean by that is paid work in the market. So mm-hmm. for instance, I have a 10-month-old right now, and we're privileged that you know my partner is able to stay home for a little while with them. And they are working a tremendous amount, let me tell you. <laughs> Child care is absolutely labor. But you know, under a job guarantee, they'd have to go to work. Now, the thing is, you know, if they want to go to work, they have the option to do so especially if we couple these programs with high quality childcare and the like. So they have the option to work there. The, the true free to choose, so to say, as Milton Friedman put it. Yep. But if they decide to stay home to take care of a child or an elderly loved one, I mean, we are on the verge of an elderly care crisis here in this country, then they get a basic income to help support them while they're engaging in that, you know, that meaningful non-market work. And this ensures that everybody is captured by the tightly woven well-being state that I'm trying to lay out here with this effort. So this reminds me of a book. One of my books behind me there is by uh, Mariana uh, Mazakudo. She wrote this book. Uh, she wrote several books. And I know she has a brand new one out, which I haven't read. But one of the earlier ones was Value. The Value, what does it say? 
Yeah, the value of everything. So in that book, there, she has one paragraph where she explains Simon uh, Kuznets. He was the economist that developed the modern day GDP, what we understand as GDP. When he presented it to uh, the Commerce Department, and or before he went to the Commerce Department, he says, of course, we have to include labor done at home in our calculations of GDP, because the labor that mostly women are doing at home is critical to the overall functioning of our economy. Then when he got to the Commerce Department to sit down and do the dirty work to get it all figured out, the person on the other side of the desk at the Commerce Department just said, we're not going to, we're not going to include the work that women do at home and just crossed it off. And then now we have this GDP, which you can probably say is probably one of the most important numbers or indicators, whatever you want to call it, in the world. And one person decided to just say, we're not going to count women labor in that. And that is crazy to me. And But what, when you mention a paying for childcare, I know you so say you have a 10-month-old, I have a six-year-old. When my son was born, I was in Portland, Oregon. We went, my wife was you know seven months pregnant, and we were touring daycares and applying to get into them. And wound up getting into one that was middle of the road, not the most expensive, not the cheapest. And it was more expensive than my studio apartment when I was living in a very nice part of Portland. It was traumatic to us. We're like, we have to readjust our entire budget. And eventually we moved here to Tucson and we were able to, it's more affordable here in Tucson. And my wife was able to, do, we were able to do the one income for a couple of years so my wife could take care of our child. And that was a direct result of the cost of daycare where my wife left the labor force, you know, and that's, that's just one example that can be multiplied by millions across this country. You think of the lost productivity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we look at the data, it's really rather shocking. When you look at most European countries, they have roughly a 10 percentage point higher participation rate by women in the labor force than we do here in the United States. I mean, we're talking, you know, well north of 10 million additional women in the labor force. Wow. The question is why, okay? Now, let me be clear. It's a couple of reasons, but in general, it is because they have care support. So first of all, the United States does not have guaranteed maternity or parental leave writ large, like all European countries. That's one important aspect to it. The second is that most other countries not only have guaranteed six months or a year off where the employer has to hold your position, but they also have extremely affordable childcare services. Now that is freedom, okay? Therefore, yes. people can choose, do I want to stay home or do I want to go to work while sending my child to an affordable, high quality childcare? That is actual meaningful freedom. And this is what frustrates me so much, I think, with kind of the way we use freedom today, which is really negative freedoms, freedom from government coupled with access to the market. I mean, that's kind of Milton Friedman's dream that he laid out, you know, he had one thing right that, that I agree with him. As I mentioned earlier, people want to be free to choose, but, you know, choice in the marketplace when daycare costs $3,500, you know, and you're making 55 grand a year is no choice at all. And so we need to fundamentally rethink these things. And one of my favorite titles of a paper in economics was children as public goods by this brilliant professor, Nancy Fulbright, that lays out that taking care of children benefits all of us. We all become richer for it. We all are better off for it. And, you know, the numbers really play this out. We want to get into the numbers for just a second here. The yeah, return please. on the public return on investment for early childhood education and care is eight and a half dollars per dollar invested. I mean, that is just wow. 
mind-bogglingly good. Now, even if that, even if it wasn't the case, okay, we should do it as a matter of right. We're a wealthy society. We can afford these things. Nevertheless, we would be collectively richer if we implemented high-quality, free, or at least extremely subsidized childcare services across the nation. People would have more choices. The economy would be larger. Children would have better opportunities, including better cognitive development, particularly for low-income children that don't have access to high-quality food at home because of poverty. You know, there just would be so many benefits. And uh, instead, we, you know, decide to go with the current system. So when people tell us this idea of, say, universal childcare is expensive, what I always say back is, you know, it's not. Indeed, what's incredibly expensive is the status quo. And we forget that far too often. I agree. Those numbers are ridiculous. They're just off the chart. And I'm actually kind of reminded, I... So I just got my public policy master's degree and I graduated about a year ago. And in one of my classes on public policy analysis, and when you study how, how public policy, you know, and policies actually made, we were, we spent a day on just a basic outline of how a, a cost benefit model might work. Right. And so we didn't do a super deep dive, but we were using higher education as an example. And we were, they were building the model and I raised my hand and I said, shouldn't we be able to include the increase in the productive capacity of the future economy because we're now educating more people. And because we're educating more people, they're more productive. And that more productive means there'll be a larger GDP, there'll be more efficiencies earned, there'll be all these amazing multipliers to the economy because more people are getting higher educated, which gives them more, there's more opportunities then. And she says, "Uh, you can't do that. (laughs) I was like, why can't you do that? And she says, that's just not how they do it. And I was like, well, that's pretty convenient, you know, because my argument was the government could pay for everyone's higher education and it pays for itself and increased productivity through the GDP. And of course, you could save taxes. And then this reminds me, this was not part of my prepared questions, but one of the parts I really like about your book is you lay out the idea of a maximum income uh, and a minimum income, like creating these bands, because I think a lot of people forget. And I learned this in my studies when I was in my master's program. That, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, the top tax rate was 92%. And it was all the way up until JFK when he did the first big tax cut and went down from 92 to 70%. Also, I believe there was roughly 30 tax levels. You know, today there's seven. But the idea was, is that, you know, you mentioned in the book that the most anyone could really make was roughly 400 or 500,000 in inflation adjusted dollars. Anything over that was 8% you kept and the other 92% went to the government. So this also was the idea too of how companies pay their employees. You know, when you have the executive class, if they're going to get 92%, eight, 92% of their income taxed after a certain level, they're not going to give super raises to their executive class. They're going to filter that back down to the lower employees, but also reinvest in, in R&D and also productive investments instead of turning it around in the share buybacks so that the executive class in the companies can earn those shares. <laughs> I would love to talk about a little bit about this idea of a maximum and minimum income band because we pretty much had that for almost 30 years. And it was what people generally say the American great times were post-World War II to 1973, roughly. Uh, And that's when we had those really tight income bans. You know, when Senator Sanders was running for president, he was called a socialist for his tax proposal. And I think he had the exact right answer to the media, which was, I'm no more of a socialist than Eisenhower was. Um, You know, we forget under Eisenhower, Republican, we had a 91% top marginal tax rate. 
Um, yes. Now, that tax rate, Roosevelt actually argued, didn't go far enough. And I think Roosevelt was right. Roosevelt in the 40s proposed a maximum income, which is an idea that completely fallen out of our political discussions here today. And Roosevelt proposed maximum income, which would be akin to $425,000 today. Now, I want to be frank. I'm not sure that's the right number. Maybe it should be a little lower. Maybe it should be $250,000. Maybe it should be higher. Maybe it should be one or three or even $5 million. You know, I kind of, I'm highly suspicious that anybody needs more than half a million dollars or so a year. But these are discussions that we should be debating as a democratic society, but we're not, unfortunately. Now, why should we, you know, I think the case for minimum income is fairly clear and fairly becoming much more accepted. But maximum income is something that I think is still rather taboo. But I think there's a number of reasons that we should really strongly consider it. So first of all, you know, just providing income to the rich is largely wasteful. So from a purely economic standpoint, we can look at what people call optimal taxation theory and modern day kind of straight mainstream economics says optimal taxation on the rich should be something north of 80, 85%. Okay. In other words, we would all collectively be better off if we tax the rich more and redistribute that income because a dollar for low-income people is worth far more than a dollar is worth for high-income people. Now, moving beyond kind of great economic arguments, for me, the biggest argument to be made here is protecting our democracy. You know, today we have folks like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and others that essentially are, you know, unelected mini dictators. And they just wield a tremendous amount of economic and political power thanks to their fortunes. And, you know, what essentially a maximum income would do would say that, you know, nobody should have that amount of power unless they're democratically elected through the political process. People do not deserve this type of power, be it to use it to fly around in their private jet and contribute to the climate crisis or hire workers all over the globe for poverty wages and put them in unsafe working conditions or all sorts of abuses that go on. And I think that it's an idea that we're really ripe to return to for a number of reasons. One is that, you know, yes, it would help, you know, Taxes on the extremely wealthy will absolutely ensure that we have sufficient economic resources to provide everybody a high standard of living. But it also helps us reclaim our economy and make it an economy of the people, for the people, and by the people. You know, ensure we have a, a democratic economy that is protected rather than an oligopoly, which is what we find ourselves in here today. Yeah. Very well said. So in a respect for your time, and I know you got a 10-month-old there, I'm going to have the last question. And we're talking a lot about all these programs. And then the big question that you always hear a lot of times from one side of of the political spectrum is how are you going to pay for all this? Right. And so, and a lot of times they point to the national debt. And, you know, from my own perspective, getting off my script a little bit, I think it's better to look at potential productive capacity rather than national debt. Maybe tell me I'm wrong or right on that. And so I'm just curious if you can explain how you would pay for this and how we should frame this. Yeah. You know, the trillion dollar question always rears its head when it comes to social spending. I mean, when it comes to wars or prisons, you know, it's fine. We can sweep them the carpet. But if it comes to, you know, paying for public education or daycare, you know, or healthcare, you know, we have to talk about the dollars and cents. So let's talk about it. 
when we ask how you're going to pay for something, I think it's really crucial to break that question down to two components. One is where will the dollar come from? Right? And we need to do that accounting exercise. And the second question, and let me say on that first part, you are right that thinking about future capacity really matters when we do this exercise, right? We can't just assume that you know, the economy says that constant growth rate or something like that. The second part of the exercise, which I think is the more interesting part, is thinking about where will the real resources come from? If we all of a sudden say, you know, college is free, yes, we're going to see an uptick in college enrollment. We are going to need more professors. We are going to need more cafeteria staff to ensure college students are fed. We're going to need more janitors, all sorts of things. And we need to actually you know, struggle with that question, or particularly this is such an obstacle with the climate transition. You know, We need to really think about where are all the wind turbines and electric vehicles and buses going to come from as we transition away from the fossil fuel economy. Now, the dollars and cents is the easy part. I lay this out in the book, and there's really a number of areas that, that the revenue will come from. So one is that many of these programs really do just pay for themselves through increasing the capacity of the economy in the long run. Right? We even have radical economists like Olivier Blanchard, previous chief economist of the International Monetary Fund, and everybody's favorite economist these days, Larry Summers, okay. making these arguments in their academic work. This is, not a, this is not a particularly radical argument, and it is a very sound argument. The second area is indeed progressive taxation. I mean, we absolutely you know, should have progressive taxation, not only to increase economic space for lifting the floor for everybody else, but also, as we talked about earlier, as a way to protect our democracy. Now, the third place is indeed broad-based taxation. You know, under an, if we were to pass an economic bill of rights, yes, your taxes and my taxes will go up some. That does not mean that we will have less money in our pockets at the end of the day. Right? More taxes, but also more services, often mean that people are net better off. Okay? And it's that part of the equation that people often miss. They say, my taxes are going to go up. I don't want that. Let me use myself as an example. I'm a professor. I have a good job. I pay $830 a month in health insurance. Now, yeah, it sucks. There's no other word for it. It sucks. Yeah. Now, yeah. it's not very good health insurance, mind you. Yeah. Now, if I have to pay higher taxes because we pass a Medicare for all program and I pay $500 a month in higher taxes, well, I no longer have to pay that 800 and change a month for my health insurance, let alone my co-pays and deductibles mm -hmm. and everything else that goes along with it. I am economically better off while paying higher taxes. So that's, mm -hmm. I think, an important exercise for us to contend with because we forget, yeah, we pay higher taxes, but we get something for those taxes. Now, the other part of you know, the equation that we should be talking about here is the real resources. And that's the legitimate challenging problem because this is where we get into to questions of coordination problems. And I think that's the real challenge of the economy today is how do we sufficiently coordinate all the economic activity that we need for a flourishing society? Mm. And markets can absolutely help with that a fair amount. When I go to the grocery store, I like being able to choose if I buy apples or bananas or oranges. And you know, in that instance, price is a decent you know, indicator of what I should buy, um, coupled with my preferences. But when it comes to life or death, life and death, or an education for children, you know, prices really just don't belong. 
And so we need to work on expanding capacity of government and capacity of planning to actually ensure that we can deliver on these additional services and do it well. And that is something that I think is often taken for granted, and I don't think it should be. Yeah, it's, it's very well said. And uh, we, we need to understand that we need to get rid of this idea that was planted into our heads in the 1980s that government is bad. Government can be good. And in fact, government is needed for where the private market just can't fill that hole. Uh, and healthcare is a place that a private for-profit industry, in my opinion, and uh, should not exist. <laughs> I believe there's I a mismatch. Yeah, there's just a mismatch of ends there. So, Mark, that was a, an exceedingly enlightening and an inspirational discussion. I would like to extend my heartfelt thanks to you for joining us today and for explaining your concept of an economic bill of rights. I must say your book, The Ends of Freedom, is not merely just a recommended read. It's a must read. I devoured it in four days. I just couldn't put it down. It was really great. And it offers more than just a critique, which we talked about. It provides a blueprint and a vision for how we can collaboratively build a society that is not only more just and equitable, but one where every single individual can lead a life imbued with dignity. Your insights are indeed thought-provoking, and the ideas you put forth in the Ends of Freedom point the way towards a future that we can all look forward to. So thank you once again, Mark, and we'll see you next time, I hope. Been wonderful to be here. Okay. I want to thank everyone for making it to the end of episode nine of Reviving Virtue. Really hope you enjoyed this discussion with Mark Paul as I did. And be sure to check out his book, The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights. This is a good time to announce that I have a new bookshop.org landing page for this podcast, where I will have all the books we feature on this podcast, as well as mentioned. You can find this book in the bookshop.org slash shop slash reviving virtue, no spaces. Buying a book from this store directly supports the authors, independent booksellers, and a very, very small percentage goes to support this podcast. It's a win-win-win. So next week, we continue with this new phase of the podcast of interviewing guests, and we'll have on a very special guest, Susan McClary. She's a musicologist who upended modern musicology. And we will talk to her about her 2000 book, Conventional Wisdom, the content of musical form. You do not want to miss this discussion. So until then, let's each do our part to nurture our societal garden, fostering growth, shared symbols, meanings, virtues, and moral narratives that resonate with our time and aspirations. I'm trying to promote the YouTube portions of this podcast over on YouTube. If you're already here, thank you. I would really like it if you could go over to YouTube, hit subscribe, and maybe we can get the algorithm to start pushing this podcast a little bit more. If you would like a transcript for this episode, those are available on my Patreon for the $3 a month Moral Explorer tier. And if you upgrade to the $5 a month Ethical Pioneer tier, you can listen to the podcast early and receive a private RSS feed that you can subscribe to through any of your podcasting apps. You do not have to listen to them on Patreon. I usually finish these a few days ahead of time and sometime over a week ahead of time. So you'll get that much extra time to listen to these episodes. I really appreciate your support. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Be well. <laughs>